All right, let's turn our Bibles to Acts chapter 3. Did I say Acts? Did I tell you I was up late last night? Genesis chapter 3. I'm so glad you guys are listening. All right, let's turn to Genesis chapter 3. Here's how we'll begin. There was a bunch of us, Redeemer youth and parents, that went down to immediately after the the hurricane uh, Katrina in New Orleans. We went down to help the church and help the community in any way that they felt like they needed help and in any way that we could help them. Several times while we were there, though, that was interesting, uh, several locals would give you pictures. They would give you pictures of their city, of their neighborhood, of their streets, even their homes and their gardens and their yards and their landscape before Katrina hit. And what would happen on a regular basis is usually they would give you a picture in the place that you were standing. And so I'd be in the exact same spot of the picture, in the exact same spot looking at it, and I literally would mumble to myself, impossible. Because there before my eyes would be complete desolation in colorless gray. There was no color anywhere. Nothing. No green on trees. The sky was even gray. The ground was mud and gray. Buildings, it was like color was stripped completely from the scene. And then I would eventually hand the picture back to the person and they would just kind of nod at you. And I realized I think the nod wasn't for my benefit, like thank you for looking and taking the time. I think the nod was for their benefit. I think they were beginning to forget what color looked like. I think they were beginning to forget in this life of desolated gray that their home used to be full of life and liveliness and color and vibrancy. And this town used to be and this area used to be and it's almost like I've gotten used to living in the colorless gray. And every time they pull the picture out, it it's becomes a distant echo reminder of the way it was supposed to be and the way it used to be, but the way it's not. And then I wonder about us this morning, and I wonder if we're getting used to living a life in colorless gray. Do you? Are you? I mean, if we think about it, what is a life in colorless gray to you? Like this morning, you sit here... And what is a life of colorless gray to you? Maybe, maybe it's a life of doubting God. You know what that's like? You kind of get in this trap of doubting His goodness. You get in a trap of doubting whether He loves you or not. His love doesn't seem to push in in the messiness and the hustle and bustle of this life. We, we doubt His persevering presence. Is He really hanging in there with me? When adverse situations and circumstances happen, we start doubting whether, is he really at work? Is he really at work in my life? Is he really at work in this situation? For his glory, for my good, we doubt. We doubt. Maybe it's a life of disappointment. I mean, you're just disappointed. You're disappointed with yourself. You're not who you want to be. You're disappointed with your place in life. 
This is not where you wanted to be. This is not what you thought you would be doing at 22, 25, 30, 35, 40, 45, 50. Maybe it's a desperate life. Maybe, maybe cloudless days and colorless days is suffering for you. Excruciating loss. Chaotic confusion. Possibly physical diagnosis and pain. Certainly emotional loneliness. Then maybe for others of us, it's a little more demanding in its tone. In other words, living in a life of colorless gray is demanding. We're, we're constantly demanding our desires. We're constantly living by our desires. We've got to have our desires. I've got to have that, and you better help me or get out of my way. We've got our agenda, and life needs to go the way we want it to go. And if it doesn't go the way we want it to go, we're instantly angry. That could be a couple days this week for me. How about for you? And finally, maybe, maybe a colorless life is a life of being driven to try to keep your relationship with God going. Because it all hangs on you. You know, whether you're close to Him or you're distant to Him, it hangs on you. Whether your life changes and whether you grow, it hangs on you. Whether you're effective in ministry, whether God uses you, it hangs on you. Everything hangs on you. It all depends on you. You got to keep this relationship with God going. And it's driving you to the ground. You're breaking to pieces. And if you're honest, it scares you. You want to quit. So here we are at Genesis 3 1 through 7. Not a pretty picture, is it? But you know what's pretty about this picture? Is that there is a color photo. And while we walk in a world of colorless gray, God in this bleakest place is going to give you a colorful picture. And maybe, maybe we'll change on the spot. So this passage is for all of us, all of us who struggle with living life in a colorless gray existence, who struggle with my life isn't what I thought, the world isn't what I thought, I'm not what I thought. There's no more color in my life, it's stripped clean. If that's you, please stand for the hearing of God's word. There's so much in this passage so it's like I don't even know I, you know, I always struggle my wife's like you are like the over killer achiever that I feel like I gotta tell you everything so maybe I'll tell you a couple things I'm not gonna say later while we're going through the reading is that okay? good let's go now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made he said to the woman did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden and the woman said to the serpent we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden notice she didn't say we may eat of every tree That's interesting. We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Do you know how... I'm not even going to mention this, but reading it, do you know what the implications of this is? Do you know what the first distortion of God was? Legalism. 
adding, touching to a prohibition. And it was a, it was a good thing, wasn't it? I mean, if you don't touch it, you're not going to eat it. Legalism, moralism, performing for God is the first distortion of the view of God in this text. Very interesting. Well, we're not going to talk about that. Where are we? Four, but the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes. Now, usually we read that and we say, that's a bad thing. Well, hold on, hold on, go over to verse 9, chapter 2. And out of the ground the Lord God made spring up every tree that's pleasant to the sight and good for food. We're supposed to enjoy the sight, and we're supposed to love the food. That's not bad. So what's going on? Well, we'll have to figure that out. All right, she took the fruit when she saw that it was desirable to make one wise. Now, that wasn't mentioned. She took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Let's read this together. Then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. The word of the Lord. Please be seated. O Lord, of many things that's heard and many things that we learn from this passage is that we are completely self-absorbed people. And this was the beginning of it. This is what led it in. And so, Lord, even now, your grace works against the gravity, the spiritual gravity of our hearts. That even as listeners right now, we're self-absorbed. I mean, Eve was in a pristine condition, and we're not. She didn't make it. What hope do we? And then there's Adam. He just flat out rebelled. So, oh Lord, would you help us? Would you even now work against the spiritual gravity of our minds and our hearts? And would you draw near? And would you be Lord God to us? And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, Genesis 2 that we just got out of, not Acts 2, Genesis 2, we just got out of is a colorful, is the colorful picture. It's the colorful picture of the way the world used to be once upon a time ago. It's a colorful picture of the kingdom of God. Do you remember? I mean, when you think about kingdom of God, I know that many of us, we hear that and we're like, I never can get my mind and my heart around what that means. Here you go. God, king, with a people in a place. That's not too hard. God, king, with his people in his place. So what we have here in Genesis 2 is the king of all creation. Not just the king that that is on his throne, but the king that is personal and intimate in his immediate presence with a sculpted people that he loves dearly. And then he puts them in what's called pleasure place, walking on sunshine. Everywhere they walk, pleasing to the eyes, good to the touch, thrilling to the soul, proper proportions, proper rewards, insurmountable good gifts and pleasures. Everywhere they go, every bite they take, everything they see, ah, wonderful. 
and then meant to push him on to the one who's even better than that. This is the way they lived. Gosh, isn't that incredible? Look how beautiful that is. And God is more beautiful than that. Man, doesn't this taste good, honey? Ah, this is the best stuff we've had yet. Yeah, isn't that incredible? And God is more satisfying than this. I mean, that's the way life was going all the time. Constantly. But Genesis 3 onward, we move into the realm of colorless gray. We move out of the color picture, don't we? And what's happened in Genesis 3 onward, it's what life is like when a cosmic Katrina hit. And what we find in Genesis 3, 1 through 7, is we see that cosmic Katrina approaching the coast and hitting the shore, and we see it as it happens from the safety of our reading the Scriptures. But it was devastating. It was desolating. It had a decreation power to it. It had a disintegrating power to it. It started unraveling and uncreating, and the, the wasteland started coming back. The floodwaters started coming back. And what we're going to see later in Genesis is they come all the way back. And the world as we knew it is gone. And that's what's happening in 3, 1 through 7. So what we got here is the world is stripped of its color. What's happening is creation is falling to corruption. And we get a first-hand look at it. And so in 1 through 7, we're seeing the event. We're seeing the cosmic Katrina hit the shoreline of humanity and hit the shoreline of creation. And then what we see from chapter or verses 8 down through the end, we start seeing these cosmic consequences that result. So if you're just trying to get a hand on what we're doing, 1 through 7 is the events taking place. 8 through the rest of the chapter is all the consequences, the Godward ones, the personal ones, the relational ones, and the cosmic ones, and how the whole world's changed. Okay? So that's where we're at. So here's our plan. Our plan is to stand on the shoreline as cosmic Katrina hits the coast. And we're going to do it from a hurricane cage. Okay, now those of you that watch Shark Week on Discovery Channel know that you can be put in a shark cage, right? Mm-hmm. Protect you from all the sharks in the water. Well, here's what we're going to do. We're going to drop in a hurricane cage. So we get to watch from the safety of a hurricane cage while it's raging all around us. We're not going to get outside. We're going to stay inside because we weren't there. But we're going to watch. And after we watch, then we're going to say, now what's the point of this? In other words, we know... That the book of Genesis, the first five books, were written for the freshly exiled people of Israel on their way to the promised land. I mean, it's staggering to think about. The word of God didn't happen till then. Why was this historical stuff that happened at creation in the fall, why did God write it down for those people and for you and me? What's the point? And we're going to nail the point. And then, and then... We're going to grab a color picture, and maybe you'll be put back together again. Maybe life will come back in color. Okay? You guys ready? All right, we're going to climb into the, into the tank, so to speak. Before we do, though, I, I know there is an obvious elephant in this passage that we have got to address. That all of us pretty much acknowledge that it's there, and then as good Christian people, we want to ignore it. Because we don't like controversy. So here's what we're going to do. I've got to address it. 
I've got to address it because we're friends. And I've got to address it because we're big boys and girls. I think we can take it, and we should be able to take it. We need to be able to take it, because I think what's happening today is that we're far too easily offended today. We've got to get tougher. As Christians, we've got to get tougher, even if the world doesn't. Ray Biles gave me a, an, a previewed article of a psychologist who's studying the culture of parenting today, and I think it's very, very appropriate. The title of the book that's coming out is A Nation of Wimps. And I think that's what we are. We are that in the church. We have got to be able to calmly and respectfully sit down and talk about areas in the Scripture that we disagree about. We've got to be able to do that calmly, respectfully. And we've got to be able, while we're doing that, to see truth rise to the surface and not just to change the person you're arguing with, but you. In other words, truth reigns, and everyone adjusts accordingly. So our goal is not winning an argument, not being right, not being better, or not being inferior. Our goal is God's glory and His grace, truth rising, and we all adjust accordingly. We should be able to do that. And even if at the end of the day we don't agree, we still should walk away friends. Shouldn't we? Can't we? So here it is. Here's the elephant. Many of you don't believe in original sin. Okay. Now, according to the Bible, creation was stripped of its color because of one man named Adam. In other words, creation falls to corruption because of one man. That's called original sin. And everything within us screams what? That's not fair. I wasn't there. I didn't do it. You weren't there. You didn't do it. Your daughter wasn't there. She didn't do it. And the whole world's messed up because of one dude? You tell me the fairness in that. So what happens is that's the way we feel, and then our feelings start turning into a confession. In other words, we've got to put a theology together because we, we don't like it. So we've got to create some sort of belief. If we doubt original sin, we've got to believe in something. So we come up with something like this. Christianity should be a spiritual democracy. Everyone should cast their vote. And everyone individually should be responsible for their own vote. So you either cast your vote for God or you cast your vote against God. You, are, you come into this world sinless. And when you come into this world sinless, you face the same spiritual test of obedience that Adam did. You either obey or you disobey. That's your deal. Your deal's not my deal. His deal's not my deal or my family's deal or the world's deal. Okay? That's kind of what happens. Now, this is a very popular belief if you doubt original sin. In fact, it started back in the 300s with a guy that made it famous named Pelagius. And then it became really popular because of a guy in the, in the Second Great Awakening named Finney. And it is the, that is a, a view that has been always within the outskirts of the church and always in the church. That kind of a view has been there. So let's just acknowledge that. Let's not pretend it doesn't exist and let's not pretend that you don't struggle with believing it. 
So I want all of us to get the benefit of the point here. So I want, I don't want to leave anyone behind. I really don't. So I want to take you into this passage, but you won't go into this passage with me if you don't believe in original sin. So I just got two quick responses to you. One response is for those inside the Bible. You know what that means? You believe the Bible. You trust what the Bible says. You just don't know what it says, and you need help figuring it out. That's one person, and I want a quick response to you. But then there are those that are outside the Bible, and you doubt the Bible. Let's be honest about it. You doubt the Bible. You don't trust what it says. And you're still trying to figure out if you want to or not. Okay, so let's talk to the person that's inside. I could say many things for the person that's inside the Bible. My response is going to be what Augustine said to Pelagius. But we could talk about why it's here in the Bible, why it's recorded. You know, why is it placed here? And why, as the first people, is the theme continual degradation and undoing until the flood? Why? And then when you get to Romans 5, Paul explicitly said that sin entered the world. It is an invader. It's an enemy. And it was let in by Adam. And death followed to all. So it's explicitly said. So that's part of it. But we still need to understand a little bit more. And I think this is the best way. This is what Augustine said to Pelagius. He said, Pelagius, if sin is only an involuntary act, then why does everyone volunteer? In other words, if sin is only an involuntary act, it's not a a human corrupted condition within and an involuntary act, a voluntary act. In other words, sin is a voluntary act, but it's also a corruption within. If it's only a voluntary act, why is it that no one, no one lives the sinless life? Why does everyone volunteer to sin? See the point? And so what we have here is this. You've got to ask yourself, what's more biblically and empirically reasonable to believe? That humans are sinless and face the same spiritual test of obedience that Adam did, and thus they have the potential to live a perfect life, have the potential to live a sinless life. There's the potential that someone doesn't need a Savior. That has to be true. Or is it more reasonable to believe that humans are born with a corruption within that was passed on from Adam. And that's why you sin. That's why I sin. That's why everyone sins. And that's why we all need a Savior. Okay? All right. Those of you struggling from the outside, here's my response to you. My response to you is, you know, you know the world's not right. You know you're not right. So what's more reasonable to believe? The prevailing belief today is humanistic evolution, which says humanity is progressively getting better and better and perfecting itself. Is that more reasonable to believe when we just got done with the most violent century in the history of the world? In fact, the violence of the 20th century, the 1900s, you could take all the whatever dates, times have been gathered, all the other previous centuries, stack them up, and they don't reach the violence of one century, the 1900s. Is it more reasonable to believe that we're getting better and better, or is it more reasonable to believe that the world is full of corrupt people? Not as bad as they can be, 
but there's an inward, twisted bent towards self-absorption and self-centeredness. You tell me. All right, let's get in the cage. Notice verse 1. This is amazing. Right off the bat, we're in the cage. The hurricane's coming. We know the hurricane's coming in verse 1 when it says, Now the serpent was more crafty than the other beasts of the field the Lord God had made. You know what that tells us? Verse 1 tells us the heavenly rebellion has already happened. Now we know the rest of Scripture that Satan and his legion rebelled in the heavenly throne room and were driven out. So by the time we get to verse 3, when the serpent comes into the earthly kingdom, we know the one in the heavenlies has already happened. It's already happened. And if you want my opinion, oh, Jeff, but when did that happen? You know, we just got done through 1 and 2, and you want my opinion? Give you my opinion. Turn to Genesis 1, verse 26. Here's my opinion. When the Lord God said, let us make man in our image after our own likeness, I think that's when it happened, sometime around then. You know why? Because the let us, in my opinion, is not God talking to himself in the Trinity. It's God talking to his heavenly court that we get a picture of in Revelation 4 and is is done throughout the Scripture. And it's God talking to his heavenly court. And Lucifer, Satan, is one of those heavenly beings and he wants to be the prized creature, not Adam, not man. Rebellion. God drives him out. So now he's down on earth. What will the copy king do? Will he drive him out? Well, let's see. Second thing we're going to notice is all the talking going on. You ever have one of those days when everyone's talking? You might be one of those talkers. You like to talk. You never have one of these days. You can't understand me. You don't. My wife's one of those. Talk, 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 talk. We got some children that are like one of those. Verbs, nouns, verbiage. There's no limit. I have a limit. I have a limit that I can say. I have a limit that I can hear. And in this passage, we're well beyond the limit. There should be no talking in this passage. You know what there should be heard in this passage? Real simple. But there's talking. 2.15, the Lord God took the man, put him in the garden of Eden to work it, and the word literally is guard it. Guard it. The heavenly rebellion has happened. God places Adam in the garden. This is, this is the test. Will the copy king do what I did? and drive the unholy invader out. Well, we know the answer to that. Notice what happens over in verse 24. He drove them out east of the Garden of Eden, and he placed the cherubim. The cherubim took Adam's place. Adam failed. Another being took his place. Okay. Third thing to notice is Eve's no match for the serpent. I think Jeremy says it right. He says, look, he's running circles around her. I mean running circles around her. You know what's really fun? This is really fun for me. You might say, man, you are weird if this is fun. This is what's fun for me, was, was looking at all the commentaries on how they tried to interpret what exactly is Satan saying here? What exactly is the serpent saying here? What's he saying? 
And they all say, he says this, and the other person says this, and he's saying this, and then they're all the scholars, the best scholars in the world, can't figure out what he's saying. And that's the point. He's running circles around her. Because in the original language, what's so fascinating, the original language, which is Hebrew, the words that the serpent is saying can literally be taken this way, or this way, or this way, or this way. Which way? That's the point. He's running circles around her. For instance, look in verse 4. This is a good one. It could mean, you will not surely die. Direct contradiction. God said that, uh uh-uh. Okay, that's pretty straightforward. Or it could mean, no, you will surely die. Now, here's where it gets a little tricky. Cunning. Remember? Because he's very crafty, cunning, more crafty than any beast in the field. When, When Eve responds to Satan's question... She says, lest you die, but God said in verse 17, surely die. And so what the serpent is doing is actually agreeing with God. Eve, you left off, surely. You eat of this, you will die, surely. Good cop, bad cop. What's he mean? Cunning, crafty. Do you see this? Running circles around her. Now the next thing we've got to notice from the safety of our hurricane cage is, Lastly, and it's moving us closer to the point, I want you to see that the serpent, notice the serpent's use of God, not Lord God. Look in verse 1, B. The woman, he said to the woman, did God actually say? Now, Lord God is used ten times in Genesis 2. Lord God is used in Genesis 1. Now, the Lord God, Lord God is used all over Israel's history because Lord God is God's covenant name. You know what it means? It means God saying to his people, I am for you. You are in a deeply, intensely, intimate, reliable relationship with me. I bind myself to you. I will not let you go. I will never leave you nor forsake you. You are in a binding, reliable relationship with me. And what And what the serpent does is the serpent makes Eve blink. Just wants to get her eyes off, just a slit, just a just a just a tad off God. And notice it worked. Look at verse two through three. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, Ah. Her eyes are already off. A reliable relationship with God. He got her. Now, before we all get down on Eve, we got to see that, man, Adam's sin is a lot worse. We're told that Eve was deceived. We're told Adam wasn't. He just flat out wanted to be like God. He was after power and identity and life and fundamental happiness outside of God, in himself, in his wisdom, in his performance, in and of himself. Deception looks a lot better than that to me. All right, what's the point of Genesis 3, 1 through 7? Why did God want Israel to hear this? What's the point? Why did he do this? Why did he have it recorded for them? 
Why does he want us to hear it? Why is it recorded for us? Why is this text here? The first we need to recognize that the big picture is important. This does tell us how we got to be where we are. That's important for all of us. You go walking through life, you have to acknowledge, no matter who we are, at some point in time in your life, I think it happens probably around 9, 10 years old, when your world you realize isn't perfect, when relationships are not perfect, you realize you're not perfect, something's not right in the world. This is important. It's important to know, okay, this is how we got to be where we are. This is why the world is the way it is. This is why we are the way we are. This is why we all need a Savior. That's very important stuff. But you know what? God wants to do something even more here. He wants to get more personal with you. He wants to get even a little closer. You know what's going on here? He's actually writing to people who are freshly redeemed. He's not writing. He's not writing to an unbelieving person. Now, isn't that fascinating? He is writing to believing people who have already been redeemed and already been rescued, fresh out of the exile. He's writing to God's people throughout generations who are reading this, that are looking to know God, who are redeemed. You know why he's doing that? Because he knows how easy it is for you and me to take our eyes off him. He knows how easy it is to blink. When you live in colorless gray, it's so easy to forget about the color picture. So here's the point. You go where your eyes go every time. You and I always go where our eyes go every single time. So it doesn't matter if it's 3,500 years ago and you're now in a desert, you don't have water, you don't have food. doesn't matter. And you start taking your eyes off God. You start taking your eyes off Him. You start taking your eyes off a reliable relationship and you start saying, Good night, we had food in Egypt. Did He take us out here to die? When you're in a colorless landscape, it's normal and it's natural to think God isn't with you. That God isn't going to come through for you. So it doesn't matter if it's 3,500 years ago. It doesn't matter if it's today and you are desperate and disappointed and stuck in demanding desires and stuck in a drive to keep your relationship with God going. It doesn't matter. The first thing to go when we sin is our eyes. Our eyes move off God and move on to something else. Always. And so when we see about our disappointments and our doubts and everything that's going on, what we see is that they begin to rule us and they begin to take over us because our eyes start getting off. We start blinking. We start maybe saying God, but we forget Lord God. We forget the reliable relationship. We forget the pressed-in intimacy and we forget the loyal love. We forget that He'll never leave us nor forsake us. We'll forget that it's deep and it's personal and it's not an abstract thought, knowing God. It's as personal as you can get. And we forget that. We take our eyes off that. And that's the beginning of sin. Every single time. Now, and that's what the point is here. 
I mean, the point is, you go where your eyes go, because the fact is, sin at its core, at its root, is taking your eyes off God. All right? Now, I said I was up late last night, did I? I said that a couple times, right? You'll never guess what I got to do last night. It was better than Christmas. It was better than a glass of milk with 12 cookies in front of me. It was better than a day of paintball lighting Jeremy up all day. It was better than a day off after weeks of no day off. It was a phenomenal evening for me. I now have a new best friend. His name is John Brashear. He made, the, he made the evening possible. And Knox and I went to meet at a home with a small group of people, a man named Nate Self. You know I've talked about him. Local special forces hero from China Spring. A book that God used powerfully in my life over the summer. A guy that three years ago I read about Robert's Ridge and I was so deeply moved, I told my wife, I've got to track down his father just to thank him for raising a son like that. And then I'm walking out this summer, and, and Knox goes, look at that book over there, and it had a face. And I, I recognize that face. Got the book. And then last, a couple days ago, John Brashear says, hey, do you want to meet Nate Self? Is that a trick question? <laughs> Silver star, bronze star, purple heart, a real hero. During a Q&A, he shared a little with the group about how he's doing, because it's about, he wrote a book called Two Wars, the war outside over there on that mountain, rescuing that seal that fell out of the helicopter, surrounded by al-Qaeda terrorists, and they come charging in to get him. And then the war within, that he had to live with himself, saying, I don't know who I am anymore. And who I see, I want to kill. And I asked him, so how are you doing with that war? And this is what he said. It was very striking. He said, my mind is being renewed. That's how I'm making it. You go where your eyes go every single time. And so where did his eyes go? Well, it was the theme of his devotion that he gave. You know what the theme of his devotion was? He has it in the preface of his book. He says, I write this to all, all who find themselves, whether on the toppest, highest mountain, whether in the deepest depths, all who find themselves in need of rescue because he will rescue you. He will not leave you behind. And that was the theme of his talk. So here's what's going on. How do you see it for yourself? You know, I hear that, you hear that. Well, how do I see that for myself? How do I know that for myself? My eyes need to go there, yeah, but how do my eyes go there? How do my eyes see that and see it in such a way that the rest of me goes there? How does that happen? Here's how it happens. You've got to see this. When the water was running down his hair, onto his shoulders, to the ground... A voice thundered from heaven and said, This is my son. Listen to him. 
and so began his public ministry. And you know what his public ministry was? At that point, he became the second Adam. And not one second after he steps out of the Jordan that God takes him to the wilderness. Not a garden. To guard it. Forty days without food. And a serpent slithers in. What do you hear? And the reliable promised one, way back in Genesis 3.15, finally comes and strikes the head of the serpent. So brothers and sisters, watch how this works. You're in your doubt, colorless gray. You're in your dominating desires. You're in your demanding desires. You're in your disappointment. You're in your disconnectedness. You're in your drivenness to keep your relationship with going. Watch how this works. You fix your eyes. You fix your eyes on the second Adam, the reliable one, the one who's reliable in your relationship, the one who actually came and took on the place of Adam and did what Adam didn't do and defeats the evil one. But he doesn't just do it in abstraction. He didn't just do it so you will believe a doctrine. Okay, Jesus is the second Adam. Woohoo! He didn't do it in an abstraction. He didn't do it in a floating doctrine. He did it in the most personal, intimate way possible because he did it to rescue you. That's as personal as it gets. If he doesn't come, you're not rescued. Now, if he would become a man, be exposed to the wilderness, have to deal with someone he already booted out of heaven, but now he's got to do it in a substitutionary man way as the second Adam to do what Adam didn't do and actually have to have a conversation with the lowest beast in the field. And then after that, he's on his way to the cross. And then he has to deal with humans that spit on him and hate him. If he did that to rescue you, do you think he's with you when you doubt? Do you think he's with you when demanding desires are wanting the best of you? Do you think that stuff bothers him when you're disappointed and you're driven to the ground by trying to keep a relationship with God going? What needs to happen is fix your eyes on this reliable relationship with him. And you know what happens? It will displace those other things. It's not that they go away. They don't go away. But he gets bigger. He gets better. And your heart gets rooted and secure. And you're able, as he signed this thing to us, he said, fight the battle with faith. And that's the Christian life. Amen.